Music. From the moment they wake up and throughout the entirety of their day at school, high schoolers love to listen to their jams. It is a common sight to see teenagers walking around wearing their AirPods and creating their own playlists. But what makes high schoolers so connected to music? Welcome back to Post Oak Popcasts. I'm Sutton Walsh, and I'm so excited to share our second episode with you. This episode is loaded with fun stories and valuable knowledge. You will discover why music is so important to adolescents and gain insight from experts in the music industry within our own Post Oak community. To begin, my brother Andy Walsh and fellow high school student Luke Kirshner speak about the connection between adolescents, music, and social media. Andreas Cantu then interviews our college counselor, Louis Dorsey, who speaks about the significance of music in his life and his experiences with performing music. We are then honored to introduce a very special guest, Post Oak parent Randall Jamail. He is an entrepreneur, investor, inventor, and the founder of Justice Records. As if that isn't impressive enough, he is also the creator of Pavement, which is a marketplace that connects people who are looking for parking at events to people who have spaces to share. We conclude with Post Oak Story segment. Josie Gregg talks to her dad and chairman of the board, Bean Gregg, about his earliest memories of music and why he thinks music is so important to bringing people together. They also speak to his creation of the local music festival at Evelyn's Park. So take a seat and get ready to listen. Let's get started. Hello, everyone. My name is Luke Kirshner. I'm a current junior at the Post Oak High School, and I'm a big musician. What about you, Andy? Absolutely. We're both huge musicians uh, with our own social media pages and being parts of a school band. So yeah, like Luke said, my name is Andy Walsh. I'm a current sophomore. And we're going to talk to you all a little bit about the music culture around Post Oak, how students are being involved in music, how students listen, listen to music. Uh, personally, I'm involved with music, uh, like Andy said, with social media. Andy and I are in a band together. Um, we've been doing that for some time. It's a lot of fun playing at school events. And we're going to get into a social media in relation to music because it's a pretty big factor. So our first topic is how do teens access music? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the same as it was, uh, you know, 50 years ago, even 20 years ago. It's uh, definitely a very different climate with many artists getting most exposure uh, from electronic media platforms such as Apple Music, Amazon Music, and Spotify, as well as SoundCloud has started to play a big role where upcoming musicians can post their work, uh, get feedback, and uh, get exposure that way. So I would definitely say that the most common way that this generation is listening to music is uh, definitely through their phones, through uh, some sort of uh, music service, mostly because of the ease of use. You have uh, millions of songs on those platforms that are uh, easily accessible, uh, not only making the artist jobs easier, but also the listener. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think ease of access is a really big point for kids in music. I mean, sure, maybe the sound quality isn't as good on your phone or your AirPods, but every song that you like could be on your phone. You know, I mean, it used to be, you know, you have a vinyl record and a vinyl player. Yeah, yeah. You can only stay at your house. In a way, I'd, I'd definitely say that it's expanding the music world because now you can uh, go on a run and listen to your music with you. You can ride on the bus and listen to your music, which, um, you know, not only helps the artist, so helps the consumer to uh, not only discover new forms of music, but also kind of indulge more into the music world. Yeah, I think uh, one very positive aspect for, uh, you know, listening to music on your phone and 
these streaming services is that it is so easy to find new music. I mean, you have these curated playlists that the algorithm gives you. You can find really great songs and artists, um, and it's just really awesome. But just shifting our focus a little bit, you know, how do you listen to music? And I think in terms of listening to songs, albums, and then now playlists are a big thing. So it's important to note, you know, when you had your final record, you would listen to the whole thing. You can't skip around or, I mean, you could, but it's definitely not as easy as it is now. I can speak to that a little bit. You know, I know that many uh, kids have different preferences. Many people listening to other people's playlists, if they have similar, uh, you know, music tastes. I personally only listen to my own playlists, have my own library of a thousand or so songs that I just constantly listen to and add a couple every week. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about social media because it's really coming into play in the music industry in the 21st century, playing a huge role. Um, so Andy and I are running our own social media pages uh, with our music. So I know Andy is a big guitarist, I'm a big drummer, but we actually play both instruments there. Um, and just looking at social media, I think marketing is a huge thing now, you know, you have to sort of sell yourself as a brand, um, but you can reach so many people now. Uh, you pay $5 and you get, you know, 3,000 views on a video or something like that. What do you think, Andy? How's the uh, social media going for you? All I'm going to say is just exposure, exposure, exposure. I mean, it's really big. Back in the day, you had to kind of make a name for yourself by either playing live, recording a record, selling your record personally. Well, nowadays, if you post a video online, who knows how many people can see it. And if they decide, hey, this guy's really good, I'm going to like his video, that's just more people that are going to see it. So that's just a really uh, big deal for me is that, you know, I'm seeing the more I make my little short, uh, you know, 30 second covers, I can create more exposure for myself and get more of a, a following, which I think is big for a lot of artists these days, especially during uh, the coronavirus, because live shows just aren't happening at, uh, these days. So a lot of artists have shifted to virtual shows. Yeah, I think that's super important to note. Um, and especially when looking at the small artist, you know, or the hobbyist who was just playing in his basement. Um, Instagram had a, a pretty substantial update earlier this year uh, where they introduced a new form of video called Reels. And I think these are really important for musicians because um, these are primarily targeted towards people who don't follow you already. So you can get massive exposure. I'm talking, I posted a video thinking, you know, maybe my thousand followers will see it and it got a hundred thousand views. So social media is a blessing, but also it does have some downsides. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the downsides I'd say is that you really have to kind of cultivate your following. You have to build it like Luke's a bit further on than I am. He has around uh, 4,000 followers, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I think I just reached 200. Uh, but like you were saying with the real thing, uh, I have 200 followers and my last reel got 1,200 views. Just There's so many musicians out there 
And now with the accessibility of an Instagram account or a Facebook account, there's just, I'm going to say more competition, even though it's, it's not really a super competitive environment. You kind of have to work to get your uh, music there in front of someone else's uh, to get, you know, push yourself along. While Instagram and Facebook might not be competitive directly, they definitely can lead to really awesome opportunities. But Instagram does not pay you for views like uh, a platform like YouTube does. So while you might be getting a lot of views on Instagram, you're not getting uh, paid at all. So for the smaller artists, uh, it can be hard, especially if you're not getting any views, to keep grinding to, uh, to get a larger following. And I think that also relates back to Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Music, uh, there's a lot of controversy around artist payouts um, and streams because artists are not getting paid at all for the streams they get. I think uh, there was some statistic that you get paid .00067 of a cent for a dollar or a dollar. Yeah, yeah it, no, it's uh, something crazy like that. Yeah, it's it's a very low amount, and that's uh, a lot of artists are really kind of suffering right now because they make all their money from live shows, and obviously that's not really happening right now. I'm a big Luke Combs fan, and I know that he's having a hard time because he uh, he's a kind of upcoming artist. He has a huge following, but he could have been really kind of making a lot of money right now. But because of COVID, live shows haven't been uh, taking place. But I know that instead of just trying to get money for himself, he's indulged in a lot of different uh, forms of charity. So, you know, I know a lot of artists are doing that, but it's just kind of a uh, proud moment, I guess you could say. Even though that these guys are kind of having a hard time, they're still uh, not only thinking about themselves. Social media in general has really propelled my love of music. I have found so many bands, so many songs. You know, when concerts were happening, I would always enjoy uh, searching up clips and the set lists and things like that before I went to go see. Uh, and also social media gives you a lot of opportunities to learn. You see other people's videos, they do tutorials, you know, how to edit certain things. And it really opens the doors to showcase people's talents. And I think Andy and I are trying to get in there, you know, trying to do that. Uh, it's pretty hard, but uh, it can be uh, very epic. <laughs> yeah, very, I guess, uh, rewarding, you could say. I know that I personally was inspired uh, by, I'll just shout him out here. It's a, a guy named Jack Singleton, uh, and he is a country artist who has some of his own originals, but he has a lot of really good covers, and we have kind of similar voices, and he kind of inspired me to get going and start posting. So I see a lot of that happening in the social media world, uh, which is you know great for the music world uh, in terms of record deals and sales. In some ways it's a really good thing and in some ways it just makes a more competitive environment. But uh, I'd say the biggest thing is just opportunity. It gives opportunity to a lot of people who uh, wouldn't have it in the first place because there's no cost to creating a Facebook account or an Instagram account. And really all you need is your phone. I, uh, when I first started, I bought a little USB microphone off of Amazon. And right now I, I found myself not even using it. I'm just recording with my phone for my uh, short little videos. And that's been uh, doing really uh, fine in my opinion. 
So really all you need is your phone and an Instagram account or a Facebook account or a YouTube channel to really get yourself out there. So uh, if there's any musicians out there listening, I'd, all I can do is encourage you to give it a shot. To read Andy's current event list of the top eight music genres and their industry rankings, along with an artist spotlight on Luke Combs, go to our podcast page at postoakschool.org. Our next segment is brought to you by the Post Oak Fund. What will your support go toward this year? COVID-related expenses such as PPE, sanitizing, and increased technology, the new museum district addition including more teaching space, a volleyball court, and a covered basketball court, a flood mitigation project at the Bissonette campus, increased financial aid, and so much more. The Post Oak Annual Fund will help us get through this year in a big way. Hi, my name is Andreas Cantu. I'm an 11th grader at the Post Oak School. The following audio clip you're about to hear is an excerpt from an interview I had with our college counselor and Houston musician, Mr. Lewis Dorsey. I hope you enjoy. I guess we'll just go in, starting with, I'll ask you what your first memory of music was. I would probably say watching Michael Jackson's Thriller video is the first thing I remember as a little kid watching the video and Thriller was was like the first like short story mm-hmm. music video yeah. so it was like something totally different than anything that ever come out before it. Well, as you grew up were your parents big on like the because he was pop I guess you could say uh-huh. he kind of revolutionized pop music so were they big on pop music or were they leaning more towards older so, so then in the in the 80s there was good music that was pop and underground. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the radios were more diverse than, than they are now. See, now it's all about if you're not on a major record label, you can't get played. Yeah. Where back then, major record labels signed great talent. Mm-hmm. Whereas like now, record labels, they sign what they think people want to hear. They don't sign the best talent. They just sign... Who do they think will sell the most? Which those two things aren't necessarily the same thing. So back then, you could have like Motown or Philadelphia yeah. International or some of these other great record labels, Stax Records, and they got great artists. Where where those who are heads, though, those who are really lovers of music, they still go out and find the great music. That's why, like with some of you guys, mm-hmm. I can talk to you guys about music and artists that don't get played on the radio really, but you know about them because you just seek music. When I was a teenager, the radio started to change and mm-hmm. become more commercialized yeah. uh, toward the early 2000s. You had to start seeking out the good music yeah. on your own. Yeah, family members or friends. Oh, yeah. So, so. My mom had a diverse palette. I remember growing up, my mom would be listening to everything from, you know, Luther Vandross to Cindy Lauper to Salt and Pepper to Phil Collins and Genesis. My my dad, he liked uh, Cameo, Earth, Wind and Fire. Um, my uncle is a big jazz uh, head, mm-hmm. so he was listening to Miles Davis and. Sarah Vaughn, Dizzy Gillespie, Thelonious Monk. I have an uncle, he listened to a lot of like heavy rock. 
ACDC, Metallica, but then he also listened to a lot of Public Enemy and NWA. Okay, um, yeah. Rage Against the Machine, Parliament Funkadelic, George Clinton, Bootsy Collins. So, so I heard like so many different types of music. Yeah. Growing up, I think it just it made me ahead. Everyone was listening to something yeah. new. Oh yeah, man! I heard a lot of. Uh, uh, then my grandmother, she was listening to like the blues and gospel, and so like, dude, I heard any kind of genre of music, like pretty much I heard. Except I didn't know a lot about like in my households the Beatles weren't getting played. Yeah. So I knew a couple Beatles songs here and there, a couple Beach Boy songs, but because in in the black community we had our own music, and so many other ethnic groups copied our music. We didn't need to listen to the Beach Boys because we had, you know, Earth with a Fire and the Icy Brothers and the Beach Boys to us was whack compared yeah. to, you and know, because they were trying to copy black music and they didn't do it as good. And so did you find that you related more to the music of the black artists and that's why oh, for sure. you were listening to them? Yeah, so like, I remember the first time I heard Marvin Gaye yeah. and, I, and, and uh, I remember, I think the first song I ever heard of his actually was Makes Me Wanna Holler. And I'm like, man, even as a little kid, I felt it. Uh-huh. I was listening to his What's Going On album, yeah. like widely considered one of the yeah. best of all oh, time. Yeah. And as I listened to What's Going On, I, it's convinced me that that song is probably top three of all time. Oh, yeah. And That's why that album's considered the number one album of all time. It, and I can't even relate to like the things you're ta- he's talking about. He's talking about police brutality, yeah. black-on-black violence. But you can relate in the sense that you live in this era where police brutality is on like a mainstream stage. Exactly, yeah. So even though it might have to happen to you, it's happening in your lifetime around you. And so you can relate to the themes in the album in a sense that these these things that were happening in the late 60s, early 70s are still alive and well today. And so like in the 60s, Marvin Gaye, there's uh, singing about uh, police brutality and stuff like that in the times of the civil rights movement. And then in like the nineties you had like the Rodney King incident yes. and then NWA was there. Yeah. And then now I there's is police brutality going on even more now, like you mm-hmm. said, it's on the mainstream. And I feel like there's now even more artists talking mm-hmm. about it. But so like for example the NWA when like the Rodney King went on, mm-hmm. did you find that you were listening to more protest music at the time or was it still kind of just Well so in, in the black experience in America there hasn't been a time in our music where we didn't talk about police brutality. Mm-hmm. I mean, so even though these things are new to a lot of people that aren't from within the black community, for us, I mean, you can go back into like the 50s and, and 40s and hear songs where you hear black people addressing, you know, uh, misconduct by police officers. I mean, and all through my lifetime, I mean, I remember in the 80s, they talked about it. F the Police, that came out before Rodney King. Even artists that wasn't in hip-hop, like I remember Lenny Kravitz making uh, a song about that. That's like early 80s. So like these things have been going on forever. These aren't new things. It's just new to the mainstream. You've been listening to music for your entire life, and you've heard how politically charged a lot of the music you're mm-hmm. listening to. So then how has music influenced your life? So if it wasn't for music and the type of music I, I, I gravitated to in my most influential years, my teenage years, 
I I have no idea where I would be as a person. Like, to a degree, the kind of music I was listening to kind of like saved my life in in, in a sense. Um, so in my high school years, I got hooked on to like um, rap artists who actually had messaging in their music. Yeah. So I got hooked on to like Talib Kweli, Most Def, Common. Um, um, who else was I really? The Roots and all these artists, they all ran together like a collective mm-hmm. and they were all on each other's albums and one, they were super lyrical so it was this thing called Lyricist Lounge that was out in the late 90s. So you had Lyricist Lounge and Deaf Poetry Jam. So those were like two big old things that were going on in the 90s and you had these up and coming artists you know, going on these platforms and they would do poetry or recite like Lyrics to their albums because it's yeah. essentially poetry. Rap, yeah. rap in its highest form is poetry. Yeah, exactly. You know, and so I got hooked onto these dudes. I'm like, man, these guys are super lyrical. The way they put words together is amazing, and they actually have something to say. And it would make me, as an aspiring musician myself, aspiring hip hop artist, it made me want to go research some of the things that they were talking about because yeah. they actually talked about things. I didn't know, so by researching those things, I learned from it. Mm-hmm. And know? so, like what you're saying, just recently I've been gravitating more. Like, yeah, I listen to music now, but I've been like uh, native tongue, so the collective, yeah, like so, De La Soul and Tribe Called Quest. So those guys I named are the little brothers yeah. of De La Soul and Tribe Called exactly. Quest, leaves of the new school, that whole collective. And for me, I, like, even though Tribe Called Quest wasn't, they were still politically charged, but, but not it, as much. it wasn't as much. I still find that music worlds above what's happening now. Just because the substance, even though it was a lot of sampling, yeah. but either way, the but substance no, the, is there. Cre- to sample, to know how to sample a record, it's an art form within itself to one, dig and find these albums. And what's cool about sampling is it took a lot of artists who had been forgotten about or who had been passed on already and bought their music back mm-hmm. to life. Yeah. Because it made you, I remember a kid, oh my goodness, this is when record stores were open, right? Uh, so we used to have a Soundways close to my neighborhood. I would save up my lunch money that my mom would give me for lunch that week and only spend a portion of it because every Tuesday, new albums drop. Yeah. So I would go to Soundwaves and they would have like this place set up with a five disc CD changer and it would have all these new albums and you could go listen to the albums before you buy it. Yeah. And so that that's probably the most important part for me for me music-wise. So getting, a, uh, getting in contact with that music and... Uh, from like the mid and late 90s with like Tribe Called Quest and all those different people, Native Tongues, The Roots and all of them, it helped me see, like, it spoke to me. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't a thug, I wasn't, yeah. you know, game begging, I wasn't robbing people, I didn't sell drugs. Even though I grew up around that, that wasn't my lifestyle. So even though I could appreciate that music, I didn't totally relate. I related to it in the sense that it was around me, but that wasn't my story. Yeah. And so listening to these guys, I was more artistic and more lyrical, more thoughtful. So discovering those guys, it was like, ah, I found my home. Exactly. And so when yeah. I would go uh, to Soundwings and look at those albums, you could open the CDs and they had liner notes. Mm-hmm. So you could find out, talking about sampling, where that sample came from. You're yeah. like, oh, they, and so now it made you want to go and listen to that, you know, jazz artist or soul mm-hmm. artist and learn more about them. So it helped them sell records. It helped revive yeah. their careers. 
So that was a beauty in there. Mm -hmm. So I want to talk more about Houston. So I know that yeah. you grew up in yeah, Houston. Yeah, I grew up here. Uh -huh. So I want to know how did Houston affect your taste in music? Oh, so so luckily being from Houston, you know, we had the Ghetto Boys and Scarface. Mm -hmm. So they were the first like big group out of Houston to the point that like no matter where I went, like people around the country, people knew who Scarface was and the Ghetto Boys. I yeah. mean, and if you look at any like top rap list of all time, Scarface is always in the top 20 mm -hmm. of rappers all time. He doesn't get as much props in Houston because, you know, just a prophet is an honor at home, as the scriptures say. Mm -hmm. And so, but if you look at any kind of rap list, he's always ranked in the top 20. So the Source magazine was like the Bible for hip hop yeah. in the 80s and 90s. And you wanted to get your album reviewed by the source because it said that you were somebody. Yeah. And um, he's the only artist ever in hip hop history to have three five mic albums by the source. So not Jay Z, not, not Nas, not uh, Outkast, Big Daddy Kane, Rock Him. None of these. Scarface, who's from Houston, is the only artist to ever get three five mic albums. It's a part of me, I love the digital age, and then I feel like, especially your generation, misses out on certain things. Mm -hmm. So growing up, we had Yo MTV Raps, we had Rap City, we had uh, VH1 Countdown, MTV Countdown, BET, and so they were constantly introducing you to new music and artists you never heard of. Yeah. You know, and then radio, the radio DJs didn't just play music, they broke new artists. Mm -hmm. So, like, it used to be a badge of honor for a DJ to say, Ha, I bet you never heard of this artist, and play a song. It was always about who can find that next up and coming, like, artist, and they would play it on the radio, especially in the late night hour. They will always be playing all kind of like new artists yeah. that you've never heard of that might not be signed to major labels and introduce you. Because that's the time that people are going to the clubs or going to yeah. parties, and so they introduce you to the music then. Can you tell me about you trying to make music? So in college, I majored in music for two years. Um, met a producer in, in college, and he liked the way you know I rhymed. We started doing shows uh, locally. And then next thing you know, I end up getting in a group. And a week after I graduated college, I um, performed in Park City, Utah at the, what do they call it, the Rocky Mountain Review. And Elo Kuche had a birthday party in uh, Park City. And he invited my group to uh, open up. Elo Kuche invited your group. Yeah. So we got to open up for him. And so that was like freaking awesome. Performing for like 12,000 people. After that, it was just on, man. Um, Pretty much all the people I looked up to growing up, I either got a chance to perform with them or uh, perform, open up for them or, yeah, man, so it was just really cool. I got to meet a lot of my music heroes growing up. So, so I did that for like seven years uh, seven before years. I started, yeah, before I got serious and working in education. Well, yeah. it's, there were those outliers, but that's how it was for the most part. I want to thank you, Mr. Dorsey, so much. This has been like the highlight of like the past three weeks. Oh, cool. Thanks, man. Thanks, uh, man. Once again, it is me, Andreas Cantu. The audio clip you're about to hear is from my interview with Mr. Randall Jamail, a postdoc parent and music producer here in Houston. I hope you enjoy. So I'd like to start off by asking you kind of a basic question, but who introduced you to music? That would be my dad. Um, my dad 
wasn't musical himself, but he was a huge music fan. And uh, being that he worked, uh, came home late at night, oftentimes when I was really little, my dad would wake my older brother and I up and uh, take us into uh, the living room where they had a record player and play us music. And so my earliest recollection was uh, really one of my earliest memories of all was uh, was with him and he was playing Odetta, the steel driving man, mm. which was, uh, Odetta was a Tin Pan Alley folk singer back in the 50s and 60s. And it was very impactful for me, not only from the standpoint of music, but also the social consciousness aspect of it. So that was my, that's my introduction to music, was really my dad just waking me up at night and playing records for me. Now, did you find yourself doing the same thing with your kids as you got older? Well, uh, it was a little different because my kids would wake up at night with musicians sleeping on the floor. You know, I was working with, uh, in addition to, artists that were better known. I was also working with a lot of development, art, developmental artists. And so there was always musicians at, you know, either crashing at my house or coming over and hanging out when they were in town. And so it was a little different, but I guess the impact was the same because two of my kids are now in Los Angeles and heavily involved in music. So the net effect was the same. Growing up in Houston, how did Houston as a city influence your preference in music? And as of now, or when you were younger, how did you notice that Houston stood out in the music industry? Well, you know, Austin has a reputation as a music town, but Houston, far and away, er, you know, earlier in the 40s and the 50s, Houston was, you know, part of uh, the Chitlin circuit. There was a lot of blues musicians that toured through Houston, a lot of blues musicians from Houston. And so, you know, Houston has always had a strong uh, music core. It didn't, it didn't have, it wasn't an industry town, mm-hmm. but it was certainly uh, a very important city as far as music is concerned. We had an old hotel here called the Shamrock Hotel, which uh, had a gigantic ballroom, and artists like Frank Sinatra, Tony Bennett, would come through and perform there. And so, you know, Houston has its own music reputation, yeah. and um, and how it influenced me. Uh, well, you know, I grew up as a guitar player and. So really, I was a much more influenced because of my age by the by the British invasion. You know, I was a rock and roll guitar player, and I was influenced much more by what was happening in the early early and mid late sixties. Later on, when I was starting to produce music, Houston was uh, rich in jazz talent. Uh, at that time, there were uh, a lot of jazz clubs in Houston, and because of HSPDA and because of uh, the University of North Texas, 
there was a lot of great jazz talent getting produced in Houston. You start, you know, post-war, so, you know, 1945, uh, really through the, the 70s and, and even the 80s, there was a huge live music scene here in Houston. At what age did you realize that you wanted to move into the music scene? It really dawned on me about my second year in law school that something inside of me was pulling me into the, the arts world, into the music world. You know, I was groomed to be a lawyer. My dad was a lawyer. I was in law school. I loved law school. And I loved the idea of being a lawyer. And yet, after going to school, I'd go to the studios at night. At that time, I was basically just working on material that I had written. You know, the closer I got to graduation, you know, I thought that might go away, and it wasn't. It was getting stronger. And so by the time I graduated from law school, I had the opportunity to go in and, and produce a jazz singer uh, that was here in Houston named Kelly Gray. You know, I, I just, I couldn't get it out of me. And uh, I had to be honest yeah. uh, with myself and, and with my family. And so, you know, I remember being at my dad's law office where I worked and walked in, finally just said, I'm going to do it. Walked down the hall and told him, hey, uh, I'm quitting. And this is what I'm going to do. And uh, that was the beginning of it. So that's interesting because, as you said, it was your father who gave you your first introduction to music when you were younger. And so while, like you said, he was grooming you, I guess, to be a lawyer, um, he at the same time was also setting you on a path to do something completely different. Without knowing it. And that actually, uh, that comes full circle because later on I was called to produce a compilation uh, album for the National Coalition for the Homeless. And I decided to do it as a blues album. One of the artists, the lead artist on that album was Odetta. And so uh, I was producing her along with Dr. John and got the opportunity to tell Odetta that, you know, my earliest musical memory was with my dad listening to her music. And so it did finally come full circle. When you told your dad that that's what you want to do, how did you initially get into the music industry? At that time, you know, there was only three or four studios in Houston, and I had been working in one of the larger studios here. I had been working there for a long enough period of time that people started talking. You know, Houston as an industry town mm -hmm. was very nubile at that point, and, and uh, people talked about who was in what studio, and so I was approached by this jazz singer to produce her. And so we put a band together uh, and went in to produce the album. At that point, I had an album, but that's all I had. I didn't have a record label. I didn't, you know, nobody knew outside of me knew who I was. So trying to get a label to pick up this album was going to be impossible. So I just decided to start the label myself. 
so I started Justice Records. I didn't know a damn thing about <laughs> what a record label was supposed to do. I mean, I kind of did. And so I knew that airplane was going to be important, so I went to the radio station and started hustling the record at the radio station. I knew retail, you know, we had to have a place to sell the record. Yeah. So at that time, record stores were still independent. So all records and, and cactus and uh, these record stores would sell your records on consignment. And fortunately, that first record we did was one of the best-selling records in Houston, you know, for that season. It, was, it came out just before Christmas. It sold really well. And so that first impression thing, you know, our first impression was really strong, and that led us to be able to uh, bring more records into the retail market, expand the number of record stores we would go to, and, it, you know, it was successful at radio, so they were inclined to play the next records that we, that we brought. And so I stayed in a very narrow niche for the first couple of years. You know, I stayed in, in traditional jazz, and we built that reputation nationwide. We had, you know, 10 number one albums nationwide over the course of three years. And my thought process was, I'm going to make a lot of mistakes early on. It's better to make those mistakes uh, with a record that you have, you know, a $10,000 investment in than to make those mistakes when you have a $150,000 investment. <laughs> and um, so we, uh, we began to branch out after a couple of years. We added blues, then we added country, and a couple things that happened was the major label started dropping some of the more iconic country artists. I mean, in one day, CBS dropped Willie Wayland, Johnny Cash, and Chris Christopherson wow. in one day. So that was a huge opportunity for us. I signed Willie, then I signed Wayland, then I signed Chris. We produced Johnny Cash. And so that took us from a very, being a a very solid regional label mm -hmm. to more of a nationally known label. So since your entry into the music industry, how have you noticed it has changed? The music industry, as far as the creation of music, started changing when digital music, when it was, you know, the digital hardware business started coming in. Mm -hmm. And so we started producing records using more digital equipment and this was pre-Pro Tools but right leading up to Pro Tools and what that did was it, it made it it made it less expensive to make music mm -hmm. it democratized music now artists didn't have to go to labels and take a hundred thousand dollar advance and then be forced to stay on that label for seven years making records for that label and, and being told what they had to record and what their music had to sound like. Uh, again, democratized music. This is one of the best things that's ever happened, maybe the best thing that's ever happened in music. 
some young artist can create whatever they want and get it out. It may mean that there's a lot of bad music out there, but anything that takes the handcuffs off of, off of an artist and frees them to create whatever they want to create, it's transformative. Um, and so I guess I'd like to ask, how are you involved in music now, opposed to when you were younger? Well, I still own the, some of the records that we made. I gave most of my masters back to the artist, and most of the publishing I returned. There's some collaborations that I did uh, with artists that they still want me to be involved with. Mm-hmm. And so that music is we it gets it gets used in films and in television shows. Um, we still do a bunch of that. So we still are. We're, I wouldn't say we're super active, but we still do go out and do music for film and television. And I, you know, I do advising to a lot of artists. Would you say that the experience you gained from producing helped you in other areas or other professions? That you were able Absolutely. to Absolutely. There's because it's you know, it's production work is about building trust and it's about teamwork. And so uh, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I start companies that's now what you know, my favorite thing to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so that early staff, building that culture, building that team, all of the of the tools that I use to start a new company. Uh, in terms of how the initial team gets built, rely on the uh, te- techniques that I u- that I use uh, producing records. Um, we're coming to an end now, and I want to thank you for everything you've said. It's been really interesting. Hi, I'm Josie Gregg, and I'm a junior at the Post Oak High School. I'm here with my dad, who's always been very passionate about music. Thank you. Yes, I think of music much the way I think of pictures. If pictures are worth a thousand words, music is kind of worth a thousand memories. So from my earliest days, I remember um, on vinyl, uh, my first albums, many of which I inherited from my father. Uh, Led Zeppelin II, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, uh, all of these albums that were written uh, right around the time I was born or in my first few years of life. And those became my first albums, of which eventually became quite a substantial classic rock uh, album collection. I also have many memories of seeing live music. This includes all sorts of different bands, uh, Rolling Stones. My first concert was Def Leppard, but a, but a very wide range of bands over many years. And once again, I. I remember, but when I hear certain songs, uh, it reminds me of times that I spent with people, uh, much like when I see pictures. So I know you don't play any instruments, but this hasn't seemed to stop you from making music a big part of your life. So how have you done that? Right. So uh, unfortunately, I just don't have good enough rhythm personally to have ever accomplished uh, things on a musical level like many of the uh, incredible musicians that I've had the opportunity to observe in my life, including some close friends. But yeah, in music, there's always been two sides uh, of the equation. There's the artist who perform, 
and then classically they're combined with producers who help produce events and opportunities for them to perform and ultimately that can lead to albums and all sorts of other things as well uh, but in this context you know here in Houston we found that we had a large community of talented musicians none of whom played on a professional basis many of whom potentially could play on a professional basis although they do better in their day jobs but we found we had a large community of musicians who were willing to perform, but there just weren't enough opportunities for them to perform. And so uh, the local music festival, uh, which started in our backyard three years ago and, and over three years ago now, and evolved into two more uh, local music festivals at Evelyn's Park, was a great opportunity to showcase all of these musicians. And quite frankly, you know, uh, uh, over the, the last two days of the last session, 17 hours of music over two days, uh, there was an incredible variety uh, and diversity of types of music and age of performers that was performed that really reflected um, how powerful music is to bring community together. Well, that concludes our second Post Oak podcast. It is so fascinating to hear how music connects our post-oak community. Thank you so much to all the students, faculty, and parents involved in the production of this episode. We can't wait to share more with you in our next edition. See you next time.